Amen. Good song. Good singing. Thank you so much. Take your Bibles now, if you would, please. Open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Please find Ephesians chapter 4. Whenever I'm away for a few services, I kind of have to reorient myself with all the different series that we're preaching. So today I was going over the message here in Ephesians chapter 4 and trying to get my head wrapped back around the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. So hopefully we can get uh, everything before you and lay it out correctly as we study these versions in Ephesians chapter 4. Now as I've told you previously, uh, this fourth chapter begins a practical side or the application side of the book. Paul has spent uh, three chapters in the beginning of this book laying down some doctrinal principles. And now in chapter 4 down through the rest of the book, he's going to apply those principles. But one of the things that we've learned as we've gone through this is that Paul does not stray very far away from doctrinal matters. Even though he may speak about practical things, he doesn't get very far away from doctrinal matters. And that's because right doctrine is critical to right practice. And what we saw in the last three sermons when I was preaching on verses 4 through 6 of this fourth chapter is an example of this because Paul there talks to us about the Trinity. So we had an opportunity to talk about uh, the Holy Ghost, we talked about the Son, we talked about the Father, and we see how all parts, all members of the Godhead are very critical to our salvation. All of them are involved. Well, tonight we come to our study in verses 7 through 10, and once again Paul swings over to the practical side and he gives us preparations for ministry. And what Paul is doing in the next verses that we're going to study is to show us how the Holy Spirit prepares us for ministry by giving us the grace of gifts, gifts for spiritual ministry. But even as we talk about that, we're going to see that Paul also has to step aside for just a moment to deal with a theological issue. Now, this evening, I'm going to preach from verses 7 through 10, but actually, I'm going to spend most of my time talking about verses 8 through 10 and the uh, parenthetical phrase that Paul inserts into these scriptures. And what I have to speak about tonight when we get to that part is a little bit unusual, and you'll see that in just a few minutes as we come to it. Verse number 7 will play a more important part in later messages as we talk about the gift. But let's stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. And let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse number 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for the principles that we learn, the doctrine that we learn from this great book of Ephesians. Lord, I pray that you might help us to present your word tonight, help to make it clear, help us understand it. And Lord, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Once again, we notice here that verse number 7 says, "...but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ." Now, one of the things that we've seen over and over again throughout the book of Ephesians is the emphasis that Paul places upon grace. 
In no sense does Paul ever want us to get away from the thought that the reason that we are what we are, we, uh, the reason that we have what we have, is all because of the grace of God. And as Paul writes in this book, he prepares the, the, the Ephesian Christians uh, to learn how to walk worthy and to let them know that the power to perform all that God has called them to do, the power to perform righteous acts, the power to do God's work, all comes by the enabling grace of God. And in order to do God's work, the Holy Spirit has gifted us with uh, certain things, the graces that he gives us for the ministry. Now, I, I, I want to make note of God's gifts in the sermon tonight, but that's, that won't be the main focus of what I want to talk about. In the next lesson, we'll talk more particularly about gifts, and the one after that, we'll talk about uh, the gifts that God gives and how these uh, differ, uh, are different among God's people. But tonight, I want to talk about something else, and, and I'm just going to briefly mention the gifts that, that Paul is talking about here. But in order to do God's work, the Holy Spirit has given us these gifts for the ministry. Now, I want to talk to you just a few minutes, first of all tonight, about the abundance of God's gifts. Now, we notice here that Paul says in verse number seven, he begins with the statement, but unto every one of us is given grace. As we read both the Old and the New Testaments, we find that God's word has given us many different commands for us to follow. Many different times God has given us things that we are to, uh, things about how to live, things we are to do. And God has placed upon all of us certain obligations that he expects for us to fulfill. But as we fulfill those things that God has us to do, as we, as we obey the commands that God gives, the, the terminus for doing this is that it doesn't end in our efforts. God, God doesn't have us obey just to prove that we can obey him. The end of all this is the response that we have to God because of what he's done through, for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the scriptures that we have are given to us to talk about the gracious acts of God and how he has redeemed his people through the sacrifice of Christ. And so God gives us gift upon gift. He gives us grace. And the reason that he does this is in order, not that, as I said, to end in the fact that we can obey him, but he gives us the grace of gifts in order that we might worship and magnify Christ. And folks, that's really the object of every Christian's life. It comes down to magnifying and glorifying Christ. Now, we notice, though, that every gift that God gives us of grace, he gives it for the purpose of blessing the church and blessing other people that are in our church. Now, I want you to notice this statement on your listening sheet tonight, that giving is the essence of grace. And the reason that giving is the essence of grace is because God himself is a God who gives. Grace started with God. I mean, this is not something that is a natural phenomenon with man. We're, we're not people who want to give grace, but man needs grace. And because God is a God who gives us what we need the most, God has given us grace. Now, some people would say that the thing that people need worse than anything because we're poor sinners on our way to hell, the thing that we need most of all is mercy from God. And they would say that's the greatest thing that God gives is his mercy. But the Bible teaches us that God never gives mercy without satisfaction to divine justice. And we can never satisfy God's justice. And so what God has done for us is to graciously allow the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the satisfaction of God's justice. Now, what does that show us first? Well, I think it shows us first that God gave himself. And that's the most important thing. It's the nature of God to give. 
God gives grace not because of who we are, but he gives grace because of who he is. Grace is free. Grace is unmotivated. Grace is never caused. And grace can only be dispensed for reasons that are found within God himself. If we could ever say that there was a reason for God giving us grace, then it couldn't be grace because grace cannot be deserved. Now, the most important of all the gifts that God gives or the graces that God gives, it's not our salvation. That's not the most important thing. It's not the fact that we, uh, when we get saved, that we can become a part of God's kingdom. That's not most important to us. It's not the fact that the Bible says that we will receive the inheritance of God because we're believers in Christ. That's not the most important thing. The most important, the greatest gift of grace is when God actually gave himself. Now, you see, God could have created a universe in which he was totally impersonal. God could, could have created man to where we weren't very much different at all than from ants and worms and slugs. God could have done that if he wanted to. But God, in his grace, became active in his creation. And God allows us to have a plan, a part, be a part of the plan and purpose that he has for magnifying himself. And the purpose that God has given man to fulfill is the very thing that will bring man his most happiness. The thing that will make us closer to God and make us happiest in this life is when we fulfill God's plan for our lives through the grace that he gives. Now, the fact that God gave himself is even the more remarkable to us when we could take for a moment just to see what God saw. If we could see what God sees when he looks at us, we would say, why would God ever give us grace? Because when God looked down upon us, he didn't see anybody that was following him. He didn't see anybody that wanted what he had to offer. He didn't see anybody who had anything other than a wicked heart. In fact, the Bible says in in Genesis chapter 6 that the, the imaginations of man's heart was only wickedness continually. So that's what God saw. He saw people who were dead in trespasses and sin. And he knew that the only way that they could ever be, be made righteous and holy was for him to give us his grace and to give us of himself. Now, that also shows us, secondly, that Jesus gave himself. I mean, this is the way that God gave, is that he gave his son, Jesus Christ. And as we study Christ's ministry, all of us know that his whole life was a life of self-sacrifice. Jesus came to this earth and he gave up the the thrones and the palaces that were in glory. He didn't come to this earth to be a a, a physical king at the time that he came. He didn't come in order that he might live in palaces. He came to serve man. And so Jesus deliberately impoverished himself for the enrichment of others. So Jesus spent his time among the worst of the worst of all people. He spent his time among the, the most helpless of all the helpless. And then after he had done that, after he'd gone through this entire life of self-sacrifice, he also died a death of self-sacrifice. Jesus tells us about this in John chapter 10. He said, Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. And listen, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. So Jesus tells us no one took his life from him. He wasn't compelled to do this. He laid down his life himself. And that was an act of self-sacrifice. So grace is all about giving. And later in this study, we'll see that the grace that God has given to us is for the purpose that we might serve others. Now, thirdly, Paul points out in verse number seven that gifts are sovereignly bestowed. 
But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So whatever it is that God decides to give, it's his right alone to dispense. God gives grace to whomever he wants. And no one could ever make a demand upon God. We couldn't demand that God give us any particular spiritual gift because God gives us exactly what he wants us to have and he gives it exactly in the measure that he wants us to have it. But here's something that we know, that no matter what gift of ministry that God gives us, he also gives us the grace to, to, uh, to work through it and he gives us the grace and the right amount to exercise that gift. Now, I'm going to talk about that at a later time as well. But the gifts that God gives are not dependent necessarily upon our preferences, and they're not given dependent upon our natural abilities. God is able to make all of the adjustments that are necessary that we might be able to use our gifts. You, might, you take a person who, who might think that there's no possible way that I could ever stand up in front of a group of people and preach a gospel message. I just can't do that. God can give you the grace to do that. He can teach you how to do that. There are people who who say, well, I'm just too short-tempered to deal with children, so I can't take a Sunday school class. I'm just too short-tempered. But then you find out that God's way of dealing with your temperament, diffusing your temperament, maybe by having you work with children. God knows exactly how to enable you to do what he wants you to do. So whatever it is, God gives grace at his sovereign pleasure and enables us to use our gifts. But now I want to move on, for the, and for the next several minutes, I want to deal with um, this uh, parenthetical statement that Paul inserts into this section about gifts. And I think that Paul does this because, secondly, he wants to show us the authority for God's gifts. Now, in our King James Version, we have a parenthesis here. If you'll notice in your Bible, it starts with verse number 9. But perhaps it, it, it might have been better if the King James translators had actually started the parentheses in verse number 8. Because here's where Paul begins to change the subject matter. And, and uh, he goes on from mentioning the, the gift of Christ in, in verse number 7 to, to verses 8 through 10, where he talks, stops talking about the gift itself. And just for a moment here, he relates to us why there is authority or why Christ has the authority to give these gifts. Now, folks, there's quite a bit to examine here, to look at in these next few minutes, because there are, in fact, many false doctrines that have been drawn out of verses 8 through 10. And so we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, But starting in verse number 8, let's read it again. It says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended... What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, at first, that may be a little bit confusing to read. What's he talking about? Well, I'm going to explain how to interpret those verses in just a moment. But what I want you to notice, first of all, under this point, is that the right to give gifts is inherent with Christ. The right... For Christ to give gifts was prophesied hundreds of years before Paul ever wrote this. This is why Paul goes back to Psalm chapter 68. And what we read here is actually a quotation from Psalm 68, verse number 18. And in Psalm 68, it explains how that Christ would be a conqueror and how that Christ would lead his captives. Now, Paul's quotation 
of this verse in, in Ephesians, it's proof to us that David not only had in his mind the immediate connotation of what he was saying, the immediate circumstances, because what David is talking about primarily when he's writing is that God had just given him a great victory. And so he was praising God for the victory that he gave. But I think David saw beyond that because there's another meaning that's in this, and that is it was pointing to the time when the Messiah would come and the Messiah would win the greatest of all victories. Now, this is why we take a look at both the Old and the New Testaments and why we compare the Scriptures with Scriptures because we're going to end up with false doctrine and wrong interpretations if we don't put all of the Scriptures together to see exactly what they're saying. One of the things that this shows us here is that whatever God had in His plan and purpose, He's always had in His plan and purpose. And particularly here we see that God had it in His plan hundreds of years before it ever happened that we would have a church, that Christ would come and that His people would become His church. Now, the dispensationalists... I I don't agree with all things in dispensationalism, although I do agree with some things. But one of the things that the dispensationalists say is that it was Christ's intention that when he came to this world that he would offer the kingdom first to the Jews. And if the Jews had accepted the kingdom as he wanted them to, then we never would have had a church. And it was only a second thought that when the Jews decided they would reject the kingdom of Christ, that God decided to come up with another plan, and that's to have his church. I don't believe a word of that. I believe that God had everything in his plan and purpose from the very beginning. Nothing that God does is an afterthought. All of these things are already planned. And that's why we go back and we think about the covenant of redemption that began all the way back before God ever created this world. And folks, if you can't see the sovereignty of God as you move through the Scriptures and see how God's plan all works together and God has everything under control, then you have missed the interpretation of the Bible. You're missing lots of things in the Bible if you don't understand that God had a plan and purpose all the way from the beginning and God works that plan and purpose out. Now, why do I say then that the right to give gifts is inherent with Christ? Well, the answer to the question is because Christ is God. Now, there are people, of course, who who don't believe that Jesus is is Jehovah God. For instance, the Jehovah Witnesses, I've preached about this many times. They don't believe that Jesus is Jehovah God. But here is one of the scriptures that we have in the Bible that absolutely proved to us that Jesus is really Jehovah God. Well, how do we know this? Well, we go back to Psalm 68, and we find out that David there is speaking of Jehovah God. In verse number 4 of chapter 68 in the Psalms, he says, Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name Jah, and rejoice before him. Now, you see the, the word Jah there, the name Jah, that's short for Jehovah. And so when Paul quotes Psalm 68... And when he ascribes this psalm to Christ, what is he saying? He's saying that Jesus is Jehovah God. Jehovah God of the Old Testament is the Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And if Jesus is God himself, then of course we know that he has the right to give gifts, whatever gifts he wants to give. So he gives grace and he gives gifts to whomever he wants because that's his sovereign right. But not only the sovereign right, but not only is this inherent with Christ, but also the right to give gifts was earned by Christ. Well, how, was, how were these gifts earned? Well, they were earned by Christ's perfect obedience. He earned the right by keeping all of God's laws 
perfectly. Jesus fulfilled every law, every command that God gave. He kept everyone perfectly. And not only did this give him the intrinsic right to give gifts, but it also gave him the extrinsic right to give gifts. And so we see what Jesus has done, and he sealed it all up. The sum total of his right to give gifts, he's taken care of it all. There's no mistaking that he has the authority to do what he does. But now we want to move on to the bigger picture of what these scriptures are talking about. These verses have been taken wrongly to prove some very pervasive false doctrines from everyone, from, from, from people all the way from Roman Catholics to fundamental Baptists. They misinterpret the scriptures. Now, what I'm talking about here is they take these scriptures to try to prove that during the time that Jesus was in the tomb, the three days that he was in the tomb, that Jesus actually descended or went into hell. Now, the argument concerns verse number 9, where it says that Christ descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we're going to look at it this way. Look at it from the negative side, you might say, and we're going to look at the false views of Christ's descent. What are people saying about this, and what is a false view of what Paul is talking about? Well, the first false view is that Christ preached salvation in hell. In other words, during the time that Jesus was in the tomb, while his body was in the tomb, that his spirit descended into hell and he preached the gospel to lost souls and he gave them a second opportunity to believe. Now, the first thing that should come to your mind is how in the world would you ever draw that conclusion from these particular verses? Well, there's actually another scripture that they appeal to, and this is in 1 Peter chapter 3. So I want you to turn there for just a moment. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and they take these two scriptures and try to tie them together. 1 Peter chapter 3, and I want you to look at verse number, uh, verse number 18. It says, For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now look at verse number 19. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, what I've just read to you from Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 3 is the sum total of all the scriptures that are used to try to prove this doctrine that Christ preached in hell and gave people a second chance. Now, what they say here is that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, that Christ went to hell and he gave those people that were there this second chance to believe. Now, the question then that should be asked as we look at the connection here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that why were only the ones who died in the flood, according to this, given a second chance to believe in Christ or a second chance to get saved? And do you know the answer to that question? Nobody does, because the Bible doesn't tell us. What we're reading here is the sum total of all the Scripture that's given on the subject. And so whenever you ask somebody who believes that, why were they given a second chance and nobody else was given a second chance, nobody hasn't answered the question. Well, really, Christ preaching in hell is not even the subject of this Scripture. First of all, the Bible never tells us that this was hell, and it never says that Christ went there. What this refers to is that when... uh, The world was ready for the deluge, for the flood, that Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, preached to people, 
And those people didn't believe the message that Noah gave, and because they didn't believe, they went to hell. And so Noah, being a preacher of righteousness, preached to them about God and about salvation and about how that they could be made righteous with God. Now, the Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he was preaching for the purpose of salvation. And yet none of the people that Noah was preaching to, except for the eight members of his family, including Noah, were actually saved. And so all of those people died and they went to hell. But there is no place in the Bible where it ever says that anybody was given a second chance. But what the Roman Catholics draw from this scripture is that uh, they, they draw out of this their teaching about purgatory. In other words, you may go to a type of hell that's called purgatory. And when you go there, you suffer for the sins that you've had in this life. But after all, sometime sooner or later, you will be able to get out of purgatory. Now, that's when you've suffered enough, when your family has prayed enough, when they've given enough money to the Roman Catholic Church, then eventually you can get out of purgatory. But friends, the Bible teaches us that there is no such thing as escaping hell. Hell is a permanent place. Hell is where people go for all of eternity. And if we could say that there was time in eternity, millions of eons could pass, and you would never be any closer to getting out of hell than you were at the very beginning. So it's a false view of Scripture to teach that anyone will ever receive a second chance after this life to go to heaven. What takes place in this life is going to determine where you spend eternity. You have to believe Jesus Christ now because there won't be a second chance later. But there's a second false view that's also taught from this. And the second view is that Christ released saints from the underworld. Now, here's where the fundamental Baptists jump on the bandwagon of the Roman Catholics and use the same scriptures that they use to try to prove purgatory. And so they say that during these three days that Christ was in the grave, he went to hell, a compartment of hell, a place in the underworld where he released Old Testament saints that were waiting on the crucifixion before they could actually go to heaven. Until the cross actually took place, they teach that nobody ever went to heaven, but they went to this holding compartment in the underworld, and that's where they were kept until Christ came during that three days that he was in the grave, and he released them from that holding compartment. Now, never does the Bible ever say anywhere that a true believer, when he dies, ever went to any place but to heaven. But these Baptists, now I'm talking about Baptist people who believe this, and many fundamental Baptists do, they believe this. But folks, this was never, it was never a Baptist doctrine until the fundamentalists got a hold of it, and through their lack of scholarship, quite frankly, they started to believe this. And so they say that the Old Testament saints like Abraham and Moses and Samuel and David and all these others went into this compartment in the underworld and that's where their spirits were held captive until Jesus came during those three days to release them. Now, I don't know what they do with Enoch and Elijah because they were taken to heaven, the Bible tells. So I don't know what happened to them. They must have been some kind of exceptions. But here they say these Old Testament saints were kept in a place called Abraham's bosom and also they use the term paradise. Now, we do have the term Abraham's bosom and paradise that's used in the scriptures. 
And maybe you recall that in Luke chapter 16, the Bible tells us there that the rich man was in hell. You know the story about the rich man who died and went to hell. And he spoke to Abraham. And the Bible tells us that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. Now this is in Luke 16, 22. So I'll read this to you. And it came to pass that the beggar died, that's Lazarus, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And so they make a distinction here that Abraham's bosom means something other than heaven. Now also in Luke chapter 23 verse 43, Jesus was speaking to the thief on the cross and he said there, Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And so they say that paradise doesn't always mean heaven and Abraham's bosom doesn't mean heaven. Well, if Abraham's bosom or excuse me, if paradise is heaven in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, then it's always meant heaven. Jesus told that thief that he would be within paradise with him that very day. Now, if we read just a little bit further here, now, first of all, we find out that, you know, the whole, as I said a moment ago, all of this doctrine hinges on Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 9, and also on 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. And it all hinges on, does Abraham's bosom mean something other than heaven? And does paradise mean something other than heaven? Well, you know, it's interesting when you read a little bit further in Luke chapter 23, and you get to down to verse number 46, that it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and said, Father... Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So Jesus commended his spirit into the hands of the Father. Just a few minutes before this, he told the thief that he would be with him in paradise on that very day. Now, if Jesus' spirit went to the Father, then he went to where the Father is. And if he went to where the Father is, and the thief on the cross went to where the Father is, where did they go? They had to go to heaven because that's where the Father is. Now, what about this word paradise, though? Well, we're going to look at another scripture. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. And uh, you probably remember the story about Paul being taken up into heaven and how that Paul went there and he tells us that he heard words that were not lawful to utter, so he couldn't really explain what he saw when he was taken to heaven. Let's notice the words that Paul uses. This is in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse number 2. He says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for man to utter. Now, what we notice here is that heaven in verse number two is the same place as paradise in verse number four. So we don't have any sound proof anywhere in the Bible at all to give us any reason to believe that Christ went into hell while his body was in the tomb. Now, not only does the Bible not teach that, but friends, I'll tell you, it's diabolical for Baptist people to take this, this, this doctrine of the Roman Catholics and try to make it their own. Now, this particular doctrine about Jesus taking saints out of the underworld is the Roman, do, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine of Limbus Patrum. And there is no scripture to support it. What I've just read is all that they use to support this. So what do we do then with these verses in Ephesians? What does this actually mean? What's Paul talking about? Well, next let's talk about the correct view of Satan's defeat. 
Now, the first thing that we have to do as we talk about this is to disassociate completely Ephesians chapter 4 from 1 Peter chapter 3 because those things, those two scriptures have nothing at all to do with one another. That's a fabrication in somebody's mind to try to put those two together. So what's Paul talking about when he does speak about Christ's descent? Is he speaking about Jesus going down to hell? I don't think so, and I don't think the scriptures bear that out. What is Christ's descent? Well, number one... Christ's descent is that Christ became incarnate. Christ's descent was when Jesus took on the flesh of man. His descent was when he decided that he was going to leave those hallowed halls of eternity and he was going to come to this earth and he would be formed or in the fashion of a man. He would become the servant of men and he would enter into this world and he would die for man's sins. When Jesus went to the cross, that was the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. The great descension, the great declension of Christ as he came to this earth was all part of God's plan. Going to the cross was all part of God's plan, and this is the way that God achieved victory. When Jesus went to the cross, what did he do? He defeated sin. He defeated the grave. He defeated hell. He defeated Satan. Why is it that we need salvation? Well, the Bible tells us that we're held captive by sin. We're held in chains by our own human depravity. We're we're chained to our sins. We're in the slavery of sin. And what Christ came to do is to set us free from that slavery of sin. And so that can be one explanation for the word captive in Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus came to deliver us from the tyranny of Satan. But for some people, and I think for me as well, that really doesn't satisfy the meaning of the words that we find in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says that he led captivity captive. What does that mean? Well, I believe what it means is that Satan was the captor. And Satan believed that he had defeated Christ on the cross. When he finally got Christ to the cross and he was nailed on the cross, Satan believed that he had won the victory. But a strange thing happened, didn't it? Because Jesus died, but he came back to life. And when Jesus came back to life, he won the victory. He arose from the grave, and so what did he do? He took Satan captive, and he led Satan and all his captives that were captive away. And that's what I think he means by he led captivity captive. The first captivity, of course, refers to Satan, and the second captivity means that Jesus is the captor over Satan. So I think that's what Paul means. So what Jesus did then, he descended from the third heaven. That's the, the place where God dwells. He came down through the second heaven. That's the stellar heavens. He passed through the, third, the first heaven, which is the place where the birds fly. And Jesus came to this earth. And then he descended further into the depths of the tomb. But Christ never went to hell. Now, why would I say that? Because there's no reason for Christ to go to hell. And why is that? Well, secondly, because Christ finished his work on the cross. There wasn't anything for Christ to do in hell. Jesus did everything at the cross. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. And he didn't say, it will be finished when I go to hell and I release poor Abraham and Moses and David, and Samuel, and all the Old Testament saints. It'll all be finished when I finally go down there and I get all of them that have been waiting for me so long to go into heaven. When I take them to heaven, then it will be finished. That's not what he said. On the cross, he said, it's finished. I think that Abraham 
And Moses and Samuel and David and all those people were standing in heaven watching it all take place on the cross. And when Christ said, it is finished, they let out a big cheer because it was all over with. Christ had won the victory. Well, folks, when you look at things like this and scriptures like this and see what people try to do with the Bible, quite frankly, uh, it's no wonder that we see the fundamental Baptist movement dying today. There is misinterpretation of scripture. And it's not just in an instance like this. Very sadly, it goes all the way to the very heart of what we preach, and that's on the doctrine of salvation. There, there's misinterpretation of Scripture. So it's no wonder that some of these folks can stand up and preach that Christ has done all that he could ever do for you. He can't do any more, and now it's left up to you to be saved. And you know what all that is? It's saying that Christ did not finish it at the cross. Something is left up to you. That's not the Christ that I serve. Nothing has been left up to me. He did it all. He finished it all. And I have salvation because of what he did on the cross. Well, now we need to answer the question then. What was Christ doing during those three days that he was in the tomb? Well, I would tell you first that I can't be dogmatic about it because the Bible doesn't actually tell us what Christ was doing. It doesn't say anywhere what Christ was doing. I don't think that he went to hell because that's nothing but fabrication and manipulation of Scripture to try to come up with that kind of a doctrine. But I will tell you that I have an opinion of what he was doing. And as I've told you before, if I'm going to give you an opinion, I'm going to base my opinion upon Scripture. So I'm going to give you some Scripture. What I believe is that during those three days that Jesus was in the tomb, that's when he took his blood into heaven and he sprinkled it on the heavenly mercy seat. Now I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 9, we spent several months talking about the tabernacle and all the tabernacle represents. You know what the Bible says? The Bible tells us that all of the things that God told Moses to make in the tabernacle was a pattern of something else. And it was a pattern of something that was actually in heaven. He said, these are figures of the true. So in other words, everything that's made in the tabernacle has a counterpart that's in heaven. Now, the greatest part of the tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, of course, is where God dwelled with the people. That's where he, he was in that brilliant light called the Shekinah glory. And in the Holy of Holies, there was an article of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that formed the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where the high priest would come in once a year and he would take the the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on that mercy seat and that sprinkling of the blood made atonement for the sins of the people. Now let's read about what Christ did in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 11. It says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashers of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now skip down to verse number 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens, and that's talking about the tabernacle, 
the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, or the sacrifices and the blood of the bulls and the goats. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, that's the tabernacle, which are the figures of the true, but where? Into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So what do I think that Jesus was doing during those three days? He took the blood from his body that he shed on the cross, and he took it into heaven to make an atonement for our sins. And in that shedding of blood and the offering of his blood upon the mercy seat that's in heaven, that's where Christ obtained our eternal redemption and made the atonement for our sins. Now, to me, this just shows us that for somebody to say that the greater part of Christ's blood is wasted is simply a travesty. I believe that every drop of Christ's blood did exactly what it was intended to do. And what I mean by that is that all for whom that blood was shed will be saved. Not one person will not be saved for whom Christ shed his blood. What does Christ's blood do? It saves his people from their sins. Not in prospect, but in reality. It saves them from their sins. Now let's go back very quickly to the text in Ephesians. Verse number 10 says, He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, what I think about this is that Christ descended into the grave, then he ascended to heaven to sprinkle his blood and to fulfill all of the Old Testament laws and sacrifices and all the types that were in the tabernacle. So Christ descended to the earth when he was made in the likeness of men. He went to the cross. He descended further into the grave. And while he was there, he took his blood into heaven. Now, do you think that this parenthetical section that Paul inserts into Ephesians chapter 4 is not important? It's extremely important. There's doctrine that's taught here. And he's showing us that Christ has the authority to give gifts. He, he stops for a little interlude in talking about the gifts, and he explains to us exactly why Christ has the authority to give us the grace of gifts. And that's because he earned it through his perfect obedience by going to the cross exactly as God required. He won the victory. And by him and through him and in him, we also win the victory. So Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity, that's the devil, captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, that's the grave, He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And that is to answer to the types that were found in the tabernacle in bringing his blood into heaven. So that's what Christ did. He descended to the earth. He went to the grave. He went to the cross. He went to the grave. He took his blood into heaven. And then finally he ascended up on high where he lives forevermore. That's the Christ that I serve. He did everything that he came to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to talk about your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, to help us as we look at Scripture, to compare Scripture with Scripture, and that we might understand what you would have us to know. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation of your word, and, Lord, that we can take time to preach this, that people receive it. And We just ask you, Lord, to bring this home to our hearts, that we might love you 
so much better because of what you've done for us. Bless in our invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.